This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Hellish Place of Angels, Kantian, One Man's Journey. And the author is Daryl J. Eigen. And Daryl joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Daryl. Hi. Great to have you with us. We salute you for your service. Uh, you were in Vietnam and wounded and suffer today because of that service there. We will talk in detail more about that. But let me read what you've written that kind of sets the stage for our discussion. You say this, A hellish place of angels is a powerful story that is developed through the use of a narrative braid of letters to the family, memories, and historical references. This is one man's journey through the escalating hell of Vietnam in 1966 and 1967, which culminated in the, in the brutal battles of Can Tien. Well, that's a war that, for unfortunate reasons, I could never figure it out, why we treated our soldiers the way we did coming back from the war, but I guess it was too much politics and not enough reality. But again, thank you for your service, Daryl. Thanks for acknowledging that. Appreciate it. Now, tell us about how this all came about uh, in more detail and why you decided to publish your book. Well, it started when we were taking care of my mother and moving her into an apartment where she could better handle her life. And when we were going through her, her stuff, uh, she came running out of the bedroom crying. She discovered uh, what she had put away somewhere was uh, this case, and she handed it to me, and I opened it up. She couldn't tell me what it was, but I opened it up, and it was filled with letters that I had written home to my family members and a few other people that she had saved all those years. That was in nine, 1998. I took the letters home, and then not too long after she passed away and I felt obligated to do something with the letters to honor my mother having saved them and also honor my time and service. And lastly, it was a effort to really heal myself and perhaps others who had experienced the same things that I did. So you were a young man feeling a lot of patriotism, joining the Army. How old were you? Well, I joined the Marine Corps. I mean, the I Marine, yeah, the Marine Corps. So I'm sorry. Yeah, for us, that's a big difference. That is true. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I joined the, uh, the Marine Corps to really join the adventure. It was part patriotism, but also I wanted to see the world, and I saw it as an opportunity, and I wanted to thought it'd be a good opportunity to see the world and become a man. 
Did you, at that age, do you really think about war? Do you really, I mean, there's no way to understand it until you're in it, I'm sure. But did, did that, did the, uh, all the effects of war, was it ever on your mind when you're that young? No, it's, uh, I had a very romanticized uh, view of war. It was, uh, you know, based on books, Farewell to Arms and, and so forth. And um, I was excited about going and actually had several opportunities to sidestep it. And um, I forged ahead. And uh, it all became very quickly apparent, the brutality of war. And um, and it, was quite, it turned out to be quite an experience. Yeah, romance gives away quickly to the reality. Yeah, reality is overwhelming with war. Why was being in the war a spiritual journey for you? It turns out that when the romanticism is gone and the expertise is gone and the feeling of competence is gone and the repeated exposures to death, that you get to the bottom of your spirit. And the only thing you have left, really, is is your relationship to God and perhaps to your buddy in your foxhole. And it must be so, I can't even come up with all the words, I know, but to see those around you get killed and wounded and or wounded, it must be a very sobering kind of experience. Yeah, it, it totally, losing your buddies in war and seeing others felled by enemy shells, it's just a, it's a gruesome, heart-wrenching experience, and uh, it stays with you forever. And if, in the case of Vietnam, we weren't allowed to really talk about it. He brought it up, it was a, a conversation and showstopper. So we weren't. We had to hide and stuff our feelings about Vietnam, and you just can You can only do that for so long, and it eventually um, comes out to haunt you. You have three Purple Hearts. That's right. That means wounded three times in three different uh, battles. Three in three different engagements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was over. In, I was. Um, in over a dozen operations against enemy forces, which is something that um, that kind of intense involvement with fighting the Viet Cong and fighting the North Vietnamese Army, um, it was sort of a new kind of experience for the, the Marine or soldier because the helicopter, as a, when it was introduced into the war, allowed us to get into engagement in minutes. Um, whereas in World War II, it took, the transportation took up a lot of time getting the soldier, the Marine, to the front lines. What, uh, excuse me, how graphic do you get in your book with these battles? Well, I, I, tr- I try to uh, give the experience that a person is there. And, I, and according to people who have read it, I, I've been quite successful in doing that. But I don't 
beat the reader over with uh, a lot of gruesome detail. I think it's not it's unnecessary. If given the right um, the right way of placing a person through the words into the events of, of what I'm trying to convey, that you don't have to really be so graphic and gruesome for people to imagine how bad it was. Why why haven't we heard about Kantian before? Well, you know, it's very interesting that that uh, that, that isn't uh, well known because it was actually, according to Westmoreland, it received more incoming artillery, rockets, mortars, and rifle fire, and and so on, every type of ordnance that the North Vietnamese Army had. It, as a U.S. held uh, piece of territory, it received more incoming um, ordnance than any other time in history. And so it was, it's curious. Now, when I went back and did research and looked up my memories, my memories were of just being in a foxhole being shelled and then fighting the uh, invading forces after they softened us up with artillery. But going back into the literature, there's a lot of media attention that was placed to Kantian. In fact, uh, Mike Wallace did uh, a CBS um, show called The Ordeal of Kantian, where he spent 30 minutes dedicated of airtime showing film from Kantian and the battle that was taken by various sources. And it made the cover of Life magazine. It made the cover of Time magazine. But people don't remember it. And and I think that's because that shortly after, that was in September of 1967, in the early part of 1968, came the Tet Offensive with Quezon being part of that. And that overshadowed uh, the public's memory of the events of the time. But Kantian was one of the most brutal battles of of Vietnam. Many come back from war and they suffer from post-traumatic syndrome. Why have you been able to accomplish so much with that kind of uh, impact on you? Well, you know, in in a funny kind of way, uh, accomplishment is actually a symptom of PTSD. Because you really want, you want to run away as far as you can from that terrible experience and stuff it and, and get involved in other things in a very deep kind of way. Um, another aspect is that I went back to school after I got back and I was so happy to be in a classroom as opposed to a, foxhole while it was raining, shells and and rain, that uh, I just, they, I had my uh, attention fixed on what was required to uh, get through school, and I, be, I was very lucky to receive a number of scholarships and grants and interest from Bell Laboratories, which I ended up joining after I finished my credentials. And, and also work on projects with NASA? Yeah, I did. I invented this uh, cluster analysis algorithm that um, 
ran on the first Earth resource the satellite data that was able to detect um, a field of corn that was healthy from a field of corn that had corn blight and other kinds of distinctions like that. Now today you suffer from Parkinson's disease. Is this directly related to Agent Orange? Uh, yeah, the the Veterans Administration acknowledges presumptively that if you have Parkinson's and you were in Vietnam during certain years, then it's service-connected. And so I, they, they just did that about a year, a year and a half ago. So that that was that was nice of them, but it's no fun having uh, Parkinson's. I can assure you. Well, let's kind of uh, wrap up here, uh, Daryl, with some of your thoughts about uh, Vietnam. Uh, was it a moral war? Um. Well, but you can. Uh, there's a lot of argument that goes into that, and. Um, I personally don't think it was a moral war. And one of the basic aspects of morality that was in the war is that we didn't take territory like in other wars and occupy it. What we did was um, measured success, in quotes, uh, in terms of body count. And I think that led to some dishonest or untruthful uh, estimates of how many of our enemy were, were killed. It also led to some terrible things like a free fire zone, the whole area I was in. There was no, um, the citizenry was told to vacate the area and vacate their homes. And uh, then we assumed anyone in the area was either Viet Cong or North Vietnamese Army. Um, yeah, I, I think one thing it's, uh, I don't really discuss that much about morality in the book, but because of the references and my recollections and these letters, which are authentic, uh, writings of the, of that period, that there is an opportunity to, uh, include the, this book in libraries and to, for historians and academicians of the time to, to be, to understand, help them and help us understand whether the war was a moral one or not. Major theme of your book, life and of course death, and which is always intensified by war. Give us a closing thought, Daryl. Well, I think I'd like to say that war is not a good right of passage, a good way to, for a, a boy to become a man. Napoleon said that he can manipulate young men with, uh, with colored ribbons and have them do anything that he asked, and that's been true in every war. And I think uh, when I looked at my son when he turned 18, I looked at him, and he was a very mature 18-year-old, but when I looked at him in terms of war, he was very, very young, and 
I was glad he didn't have to to go to prove anything. So I I, I wish all that only men fight wars that have to be fought. We've been listening to Daryl J. Eichen. He is the author of his book, A Hellish Place of Angels, Kantian, One Man's Journey. Daryl, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's, it's available anywhere as an e-book or as a paperback. Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Powell Bookstores, Books A Million. I, on the website, if you, in fact, if you just Google A Hellish Place of Angels, uh, a lot of these opportunities will come up, and you can go ahead and purchase the book. Thank you very much, Daryl. Again, thank you for your service, and thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, You Can Rejoin Joy, Blogging for Today's Psychology, Volume 9 in the Rejoining Joy book series, and the author is Dr. Gerald Young. And Dr. Young joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Young. How are you doing? Let me read a couple things that you've written so we'll understand... In the general nature, what your uh, book is about, you say the book provides strategies and techniques for effective ways of daily living from a psychological viewpoint that one can apply through self-discovery and hope for improvement. So this book is 
I understand a collection of blogs that you've done for a magazine. That's right. I wrote them for the magazine called Psychology Today uh, in the space of uh, less than one year. And so they form a, a coherent message. There's uh, really two aspects, I think, to all my books. Uh, one is that there's general messages and how to deal with stress, uh, how to self-improve, and uh, um, how to tell oneself better stories, how to think more positively. That would be the cognitive side of it, if you will. And But we also need behavioral techniques such as breathing exercises, meditation, if you will, that helps calm down the body and mind so we can be more positive and optimistic and and, and turn some of those negative thoughts we have into more positive thoughts and a, a good motivation to um, deal with stress and to improve uh, our habits and our self-growth. This is part of a book series. This is volume nine, so obviously there's eight other volumes. Yes, sir. And uh, again, these are uh, more or less having the same messages, but in different ways. So uh, how can we improve ourselves? Uh, how can we have the grand strategies to, to be more optimistic, to tell ourselves better stories, and to tell others better stories, and, and how can we learn specific te- techniques to help us do that? So uh, I have a series of uh, books related with essays in them, uh, with graphs and figures, uh, that are explained one by one in short little blurbs, something like a blog. Um, I have a workbook of exercises. I have a, a small book of sayings that are inspirational and get at the same message. And uh, this is the latest one in the series after that. Uh, the, this, the, the others were written. There's also one book that collects the best of the prior books together. Dr. Young, tell us a little bit about your professional background. Well, I think I'm um, a person who can uh, write well for the uh, tasks that I've just, for the books that I've just described to you because I'm a professor of psychology at York University in Toronto. Uh, I do a lot of research and write books and and articles, and um, I have a private practice where I'm dealing with people who have stress and trauma issues and self-growth issues. And so everything sort of comes together in all three areas. And the ultimate product are these nine books to help uh, more people than in my office, but uh, people out there in the public. And also psychologists who uh, want to use my books to help them with their patients and also the patients themselves. So uh, there's a lot of material here that can help a lot of different audiences. You talk about self-help, you talk about self-growth, and you say it's a person's birthright. And that often, though, this self, this self-change is uh, fairly difficult for most. Uh, how does your book help us go through that process? Um, by birthright, I mean that no matter what the difficult circumstances we find them ourselves in, we're not just fixed facts, repetitions of what our genes have prescribed for us or what our environment, even how negative, has prescribed for us. We have a choice. We have a voice. We can look back at our biology, if you will, and our environment and how they interact 
to make us whom we are, and we're the third force. We're the self who can say, no, this habit, this uh, direction in my life, uh, I want to change those, and I want to become a better person, and I want to move forward, and I want to take charge. Uh, we, we don't have to be uh, people who have our biology or environment take charge. We can take charge ourselves and develop better habits and grow. You call... And it might be very hard for some people, for sure, given the extensive problems they have uh, environmentally and what has happened to them throughout their development, but there, there's always hope. So everyone can do this? I think so, and there might, they might need professional help mm-hmm. to get them through it. And um, I have written that the self-help books can be an adjunct. As I said, if people are seeing psychologists, the self-help books can be... Uh, used either by the psychologist or on the side to uh, help the psychologist or psychiatrist or other mental health professional in in what's going on in your life. You have uh, different sections of your book. Let's see, we've got uh, 11 sections, all all different kinds of topics of these blogs. Now, are these blogs the type of uh, reading, uh, you even call it light reading. It's not academic, obviously. It's it's kind of help right. us to focus on the, you know, on a certain uh, topic or uh, an experience and help us go from there. That's right. So after I wrote the blogs, um, I try to organize them into sections, and um, I think that gives some unity to the book. Uh, light reading in the sense that they're not very long, so that most around a thousand words. And light reading in the sense, as you say, they're not academic. But at the same time, they're serious, some of them, and um, they help you reflect on your life and how to improve it. So uh, some of them might need a second reading, but um, the overall message is that uh, you can do it, and the blogs can help you do it. Sections titled such as Reclaiming Joy, Regaining Yourself, uh, Rejoining Relationships, uh, Repairing the Self. Uh, This one kind of jumps out at me. Keeping Control in Chaos. Now, uh, we often find ourselves kind of overwhelmed in a stressful world. That's right. Well, um, overviewing the various sections, for example, some the blocks concern relationships, uh, even intimacy and sex. Uh, some of them concern family and children. Uh, but as you say, one of the sections involves chaos. So sometimes the world is so uh, um, difficult around us, and sometimes our developmental history is so problematic that the world seems chaotic, even if uh, the present might not be so difficult, but we bring the chaotic baggage with us. And uh, hopefully, through uh, self-help and or dealing with the right professional, um, things become easier, both in terms of seeing the wider picture of your world, uh, seeing uh, a different pathway, uh, working with bad habits and developing better ones, and um, also using specific strategies such as breathing techniques, uh, muscle relaxation, uh, and other things that psychologists might teach to calm down the body and mind so that we can develop a a better motivation and a better attitude and work, even if it is difficult, through some of the chaos of the past and the present. Well, you have one, one, uh, looks like, blog for rejoining relationships, section four. How 
do you make St. Valentine's Day last? Everyone wants to do that. <laughs> right. Uh, I believe that's the blog that had the most hits on the website. And uh, um, it's way beyond the issue of just um, uh, rejoining sex. It was about uh, being with your partner, uh, fully present, uh, listening carefully, knowing how to communicate with the partner. Um, One strategy, for example, I don't know if it's in that blog that I like to talk about is uh, instead of using directives to people, and that would apply to children as well, um, using the word maybe, like maybe we can go out to a new movie as opposed to we're going out tonight, even if you're busy. And so there's ways of speaking to people to give them uh, an opening, an option, and how to respond and let them choose rather than you imposing. And uh, uh, there's all sorts of strategies that we can use to make communication a two-way street uh, rather than a one-way viaduct. Well, in this world, there's a lot of injury and illness. You have a section on that, Section 7. Uh, and, of course, a lot of people, unfortunately, tragically, hear that phrase, it's cancer. Right. Well, um, I think no matter what the illness or injury is, um, psychology can help. Um, now, my practice is in rehabilitation um, for a large part, so I'm dealing with uh, people who uh, have very serious injuries, people who have lost partners and children uh, in accidents, um, pe- children who are orphaned. And as a psychologist, we always want to give hope and, in the way I've been describing, um, give strategies for dealing with uh, uh, the worst tragedies, tragedies that can happen. And I think the same is about uh, cancer. Uh, for cancer... Um, we don't know what the ultimate outcome is going to be. Uh, the doctors might have their prognoses, but psychology can play a role in uh, making each day better and giving hope and motivation to get through the day. And, and by do, having that, we don't know if that can actually help uh, um, you know, life longer, uh, a longer life to take place, but certainly it can make each day that we might have left better, and don't forget, many cancers are not uh, the uncurable kind or the terminal kind, but interventions, medical, can help. And so we always have to keep hope, whether, no matter what the illness is, on the one hand. On the other hand, that happens to refer to uh, my own diagnosis and uh, of cancer, and obviously I have the very same attitude. Um, keep a positive framework and just keep going and uh, that, that really has helped me. And in your section on personal perspectives, you have a blog on spiritualities. Right. And I try to uh, write a very uh, open um, blog on that question. It's not about religion per se or um, praying in a religious way. It's about being open to uh, spiritual uh, knowledge, spiritual experience, uh, spiritual encounter, um, in, in the broadest sense of the word, uh, communing with nature, uh, communing with uh, ideas of, uh, of helping nature, and not just being so taken uh, by um, our uh, personal lives and problems, but opening up to the world, if that makes sense. And that gives a, a certain internal peace and a good way of encountering the world as someone who wants to be helpful. 
We have a couple of minutes left. Uh, this last section, last words for your new beginning. There's one that has an interesting uh, title, The Smallest of Lights Can Cast the Largest of Shadows. Tell us about that. Well, um, again, it's not so much getting to the end and getting a path that's full of fulfillment right away. It's a question of being on the right path. And growth is something uh, in the self-help field as well. It's about um, getting there rather than arriving. Because uh, even when we arrive somewhere to a goal that we want, then there's always a next goal. So being positive and uh, focusing on the positives always helps. And it might be a little light that we encounter that can spread a lot of uh, effect on people. And it's not only big goals in life, but it's the daily encounters that we have uh, every second and every minute with people. And being positive that way can have as much uh, an impact on people as accomplishing the greatest things with the greatest goals. So self-growth is about what's happening each moment of the day rather than accomplishing um, end goals like uh, that, are, that are material or work-related or having this person arrive at that end in your family. It's about the moment-by-moment encounters of life where we really want to be present with people and impact them with a little light and even a big light each second of the day. So we don't have to just give in and be a victim. We can take charge at least a little bit each day and change our lives. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, maybe you should write the next blog. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it all makes sense. We appreciate you being with us in uh, Dr. Young's book, you Can Rejoin Joy, Blogging for Today's Psychology, Volume 9 in the Rejoining Joy book series. Dr. Young, tell us how to get your book. Well, there's a, a website um, called rejoiningjoy.com that you might want to uh, visit. And uh, from there, there's uh, various books that are available in the series, including the one on um, blogging. And uh, that's one way, and I would imagine that iUniverse, uh, uh, my publishing partner, will uh, uh, let us know other ways, and they will be indicated uh, through links on the website. So go to rejoiningjoy.com, and um, you will have a, a great self-help improvement experience beginning. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Gerald Young, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, sir. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. 
Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Ports of Call, Journeys in Ministry. And the author is Reverend Richard Leonard and Reverend Leonard joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Reverend. Hello, how are you, sir? Well, great to have you with us. Uh, Let me read what you've written to kind of set the stage for our discussion of your book. You say this, It is a collection of stories and events that came my way as a clergyman for many decades in the world's most interesting and dynamic city. And, of course, that is New York City. Big Apple. <laughs> I've been here 56 years, so I think I know New York pretty well. But you go all the way back, uh, your experiences go all the way back to uh, Selma when you marched back uh, many decades ago. Yeah, yes, I happened to be one of the 300 who was able to make the march from Selma to Montgomery, and I think I was, uh, well, I know who now, but I was the only one who was writing all those time that I marched because uh, most of the participants, 274 of them, were um, close to illiterate uh, and from the local area down there. And the rest of us uh, were there for symbolic reasons. And uh, so I I was able to kind of size up the group, and it was raining most of the time, and I'm just a person who keeps writing. So I kept writing as we marched. Well, you're described as a liberal minister in New York City area for 54 years. You have pastored a number of churches. Yes, I have, but all in the New York area. And married hundreds, and you've had uh, lots of you children. Say thousands, thousands, married more there than four thousand couples. Four thousand couples. <laughs> and That's eight thousand people if you want to do the math. <laughs> That's right. And so, this ports of call, as you put it, is a sampler of your next book to come. But let's focus on this. Uh, book. You've broken it down into uh, different sections. You have sermons from the quarterly, poems, annual report, and then you have a couple short stories and an epilogue. Uh, what really is the reason for including some selected sermons, just so we can get to know you better? Yes, well, 
uh, when I had finished my book about Selma, and uh, it is in the National Archives, uh, and I discovered that I, I could, in fact, put a book together, uh, I began to think, you know, there are other things that I would like to leave behind, uh, probably some of my better sermons. Now, uh, I, I will have to say that uh, preaching has been a part of my life, as it is for every clergyman, but uh, so have the weddings and the memorials and uh, uh, the various places where you appear on request and so forth. And uh, uh, But I thought, let's let's preserve some of the sermons. Uh, and uh, the next thing I wanted to preserve was uh, this story about the day the Russians came, when I was asked to do uh, somebody a favor and see that uh, a group of Russians got escorted to uh, it, within uh, Kennedy Airport from one terminal to another. And that turned out to be the most incredible story. Uh, story. And... Uh, uh, when I when that had happened, uh, I, I came home and I said to Polly, "Don't say a word until I write down everything that happened today." When I did what I thought was going to be an easy thing, and uh, the what made the story even more interesting was that when these Russians went back to Russia, uh, they went a different route. They didn't even come through New York City. Uh, but uh, it involved both countries and uh, the Atlanta Constitution and Congress. And so my part of the story was only the beginning of their story. And the, the rest of the story is written up by another minister. And I thought, you know, this is just so odd. It has to be preserved. And it was preserved in a little pamphlet. But I thought, let's put it in a book. So at first it was just the sermons that I wanted to save, uh, eight or twelve or whatever it was, and uh, and the story about the day the Russians came to New York. Uh, and then other things began to accumulate. I thought, you know, my life has been so uh, full of bizarre things that uh, you wouldn't believe unless a clergyman told you, but you have to believe it when a clergyman tells you, don't you? I, I don't know, maybe you don't, but... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I recall some of these things and things that I had written, and I said, let's just throw in uh, a lot of different uh, things that show what uh, a ministry is like. And uh, also, my wife and I traveled a lot, and things happened in those travels that I couldn't imagine could have happened to anybody else. So uh, that's how Ports of Call came to be Ports of Call. It was just... Uh, various places we've been and things we've done, but this is what the life of a uh, Unitarian minister uh, is like. And thus, one of the messages that you're trying to get across, uh, expect the unusual to happen and make the most of well, it. Well, yeah, I think it must be true for most people that that uh, life is a lot more unpredictable than we tend to think it is. I mean, anything can happen tomorrow. And uh, I have a mindset now that uh, although I've been granted 85 years uh, and uh, have enjoyed them all, uh, you know, it could end tomorrow and uh, and it could go on uh, uh, another 20 years. I mean, I, I tell my friends I hope to live to be 103 but not 104. And then they say, well, why don't you want to live to be 104? And I say, well, because I don't want to be a burden to anybody. <laughs> and, and, and they have to think about that a bit, and then they realize that uh, I'm just being a, a little bit playful because the future is so 
uh, open-ended, and, and uh, I've I decided that you just go with life with a certain attitude and uh, hope for the best, but be very grateful for what you've had. Can one be religious and open-minded at the same time? Oh, I hope so, because, uh, uh, you know, religion is a great solace to uh, people everywhere around the world, and yet we have to say religion is uh, uh, the cause of uh, many of our wars, or at least the misuse of religion, and people's arguments and fighting over religion, and uh, and uh, misunderstanding of humanity and so forth. So uh, I, I hope, uh, you know, that uh, people who have religious, deep religious views uh, can still keep their minds open to the idea that they haven't learned everything that there is to learn, and, and maybe there's a lot of new stuff out there that uh, they better take advantage of knowing uh, if they're going to keep up with the world. Why did you become a Unitarian minister after serving in uh, other ways before? Yes, well, I, I grew up as a Congregationalist, uh, and that is a liberal Protestant uh, Christian denomination. And I had my first church, which was just on the outskirts of New York City, was a Congregational church. And there, as a full-time minister, I had a congregation of about... I had uh, about 1,500 members were uh, uh, coming to the church anyway. Uh, and uh, um, I got involved in a kind of controversy uh, on Long Island uh, that involved putting the Lord's Prayer in the schools. And I, I belonged to a, a, a religious council that was made of, of uh, rabbis and ministers and and one priest one catholic priest and uh the school board in the town of cedarhurst long island wanted to put the lord's prayer up on the walls of the high school and uh it just happened that uh, the school board was made up entirely of christians and the the school body was made up uh, about uh, 95 percent jewish and to put the Lord's Prayer up uh, on the wall uh, would have been uh, sort of an affront to their uh, students' religion. Plus, there was a big question whether it belonged in the public schools anyway or not. And this controversy uh, roiled along, and I happened to be the secretary of that religious council, which incidentally, to a person, said it doesn't belong there. Uh, including the Catholic priest and the rabbis and the minister. We were united in this. This was not the thing to do. Uh, and uh, it's at that time that I really began thinking, you know, where is my deepest interest as a clergyman? Is it in promoting a liberal Christian viewpoint, or is it uh, helping the various religions to understand each other better and cope with each other better and, and learn from each other better? And uh, <laughs> my vote came down to uh, the latter, and uh, I didn't see it as a rejection of my Christian upbringing, but as a kind of fulfillment of it. And I went back to the community church where I had served as an intern minister to just to talk to Donald Harrington. That, that was the largest Unitarian church in the country at the time. And I said, Don, how does one become a Unitarian minister? And he said, well, it's, it's funny you should ask because we're having an opening right here at 
community church, and I think you'd be just the guy for it. And so I stepped from the from another denomination immediately into the largest Unitarian church in the country as their minister of education. And it was an easy step for me, and people said, how did he do that? And uh, I don't know exactly how, except that the opportunity was there, and uh, and I grabbed it, and I've been a, a devoted uh, Unitarian Universalist minister from that point on. So that's, that's in brief, how I became a, a Unitarian minister. And uh, as I say, I'm not rejecting my Christian roots, but I, I feel that uh, this is where, as a Christian uh minister I really want to serve and, and that the future of the world really depends on all the different groups talking calmly with each other and not uh, uh, trying to kill each other. We have more in common than we do have differences. Yeah, indeed we do. <laughs> 99% is in common and the differences right. unfortunately divide us. Yeah. Right, exactly. Now in your book, uh, you've included some writings to All Souls Quarterly. You've written, you've included a couple poems. I'm uh, particularly interested why you included annual report to the congregation in your book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, there was a, a frivolous uh, uh, event. Uh, I had just retired from uh, from All Souls Church, and they they let me retire, providing I continued to do weddings and come in and do whatever I felt uh, needed doing. And uh, um, and so I I went to their annual meeting, not knowing whether they wanted a report from their retired minister or not. And uh, I, I sat in the back as uh, reports were given and uh, decided I would scribble out uh, uh, a brief report. And uh, I got up and said, uh, my annual report uh, tonight is just two words. And uh, I kind of heard a gasp go through the people and they, you know, what two words could I give them? And then I gave them a whole string of two-word phrases, and uh, it was so popular, I, I was reminded of that report year after year, and I thought, well, maybe that report belongs in there, too. It, it's, again, frivolous, but there's there's a lot of uh, advice there, too, that makes one stop and think, you know, am I doing this? Should I not do this? I don't have that report in front of me, but uh, I think you have an idea mm -hmm. of what's in it. Right. Well, at the age of 84, 84 years of experience, yes. mm -hmm. uh, what advice do you have? I have to say this. I'm going to be 85 next Monday. Oh, so, well, congratulations. Uh, Happy I, birthday. I sometimes say 85, <laughs> and my yes. book probably has me as 83 or something. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'll be 85 on Monday. Time uh, marches yes, I on. I am 84. <laughs> Time marches on, yes. Well, in your this age uh, where you've certainly had them, incredible amount of experiences. What advice do you have for those in advanced years? Yes, well, uh, you know, I'm sort of like a magnet over at All Souls Church today for the people who are getting on in years, and partly because my wife has Alzheimer's, uh, and uh, partly because the minister is supposed to have a certain reservoir of wisdom anyway, I guess. Uh, but uh, people come over to me and say, uh, 
you know, how is Polly, for instance? And and I I will say, well, uh, you know, she's about the same as she has been. I, I recognize what they're really saying underneath is, how are they doing? Uh, because as you get older, you begin to worry. Uh, you know, are you going to be a burden? Or maybe you worry much sooner than that, but certainly when you get older, uh, are you going to be a burden? Are you going to be able to take care of yourself? And we really don't know. Uh, we can be in the best of health and have a stroke or something, and suddenly we're, we're thrown on everybody else's uh, care. Uh, and and as you get older, you just spend a little more time thinking about that. So, And people come up to me and say, uh, you know, I don't remember names the way I used to. And I have to say, well, you know, nobody remembers names quite as well as when they were young. As you get uh, a person who's uh, 90 years old isn't going to be able to rattle off all the names uh, of the kids who were in their elementary school or, or even, I mean, there's a certain process that goes on with aging, uh, but it's not necessarily Alzheimer's. Uh, or, or dementia. Uh, you just, uh, the mind just gets less, uh, flexible and, uh, but we, we just don't know what's in front of us. I, I, uh, one of the stories in Ports of Call is about going to a, uh, a birthday party for a woman who is a hundred years old. And believe it or not, she had 700 guests to her birthday party. This was in the ballroom of one of the big hotels in New York. And not everybody got in that thought they were going to get in. She sat in a chair and she greeted everybody as they arrived. Now, she didn't call them by name, but she had something nice to say to everybody, something a little different. And, and then she goes in and she is the main speaker at her birthday party. And she speaks for 20 minutes without notes. Her, her name was Nanny Pollitzer. And she was very important in the Ethical Culture Society. And uh, uh, there were congressmen there. Other people spoke. But she was the main speaker. And at one point while she's speaking, she said, uh, oh, uh, and she kind of faltered. Uh, well, that's what happens when you get to be 100 years old. And then she goes right on. Say, uh, and uh, up in the balcony, I, I remember the number 57 sticks in my head. She had 57, not children, but grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. And they all came down and blew out the 100 candles wow. for her on her cake. Mm -hmm. Well, you can just imagine what a scene that was. And as I say, that kind of future could be in front of any of us. I mean, we, we have no idea... Uh, what we'll be doing five years from now, one year from now, 20 years from right. now. So my advice is keep that mind as open as you can, read new things, do new things, try new things, and uh, always remember how fortunate you are to be where you are. We've been listening to Reverend Richard Leonard. He is the author of his book, Ports of Call, Journeys in Ministry, Reverend, tell us how to get your book. <laughs> I guess uh, you get it. <laughs> you you tell me. Uh, it's uh, published by iUniverse, and uh, it's on Amazon.com. Uh, you can get it there. Sure. Uh, and you can always get it through the All Souls Church, which is at uh, 
1157 Lexington Avenue in New York City. We have a bookstore there, and uh, there are probably other copies floating around. <laughs> thank you, Reverend Leonard, for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, sir. This has been a pleasure talking with you, sir. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.